I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warmth? Picture it. Sicily. 1922. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Killer's Culture Nut Jobs 2.0. I'm, as always, Mr. Warmth, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J. And joining with me this time, as always, is the lovely and beautiful Monica. Hi. Okay. Um, we're going to continue on with our, our look into the life of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown of Chicago. And for those of, before we really get into it, because I'm probably going to reference it a lot in this episode, um, Netflix has this really great series. It's called uh, Conversations with a Killer. And their first episode was on, on Monica's favorite, Ted Bundy. You were saying? <laughs> well, I was saying that, um, you know, the first series of Conversations with a Killer was with your favorite, Ted Bundy. Well, it was like they were definitely one of the first ones I learned about. Well, you you haven't ha you've had a chance to see his car, the the VW. Oh yeah. Now was that yeah, was, the, you, was that the uh, one he used after the Kai Omega? I'm not sure. I don't think he, they had like like on the wall like description yeah. about it. I forget. Plus, it's also been. Almost seven years since I saw, so I can't quite remember. But whatever, it, it was tan. So okay. So, so I once I go back, once I actually start reading the Bundy books, I'll figure out where the car, where the car fit into the grand scheme of things. Yeah, because um, I love it because the picture I have of it, James is in his the stroller and he's mm. actually pointing at it. So it's pretty funny because like, right. obviously he was too young to know. Right. What you know, it was, where he was. Well, uh, just on April 20th, uh, Netflix released the second, second, um, I guess you want to say series in this uh, conversations with the killer thing they're doing, which is on John Wayne Gacy. And um, so there's going to be times where I'm going to kind of like reference the show, but you guys should check it out anyway. It's a it's a really great three part episode. Um, you know, there's some family members who talk. There's uh, Gacy's sister is interviewed for it. Uh, his lawyer Sam Aramonte, who wrote a really great book called um, "Defending Gacy," and I've been trying to find it. Every time I go to Half Price Books, it's never on the shelf. So, or try one of the other, like like said thrift books or the Abe. Um, books. I, you can. I yeah. I I, I might try uh, AB books. Um, I know up in Lansing, Michigan, there's a true crime bookstore. So that they have it, Vincent. and you can also. I feel like I'm putting a plug in here for thrift books, but you can put <laughs> it under, like the wish. Be notified when um they get a copy of it. They, they probably have you. They probably have your information memorized. If you've ordered enough from them. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, that's like basically that's all I've been doing too because it's. God, it's, I really feel like I'm plugging them here, but I think it's like fifteen dollar <laughs> threshold for then you get free shipping. So it's not bad. And no, there's no, no that's not. around here, like I said before. <laughs> so, okay, we're gonna get right back into John Wayne Gacy. Now, between 1972 and 1978, great six-year gap there. Um, we're not gonna mention that within this six-year gap the greatest podcaster ever known to man was born looks like she wanted to say something yeah i can't think of anybody right now hmm. me great thing oh really yeah oh, okay yeah <laughs> gacy murdered 33 people in his norwood home now, he found his victims by either cruising the local gay hangout at Bug House Square. And before you even ask, I have no idea where that is in Chicago. It, it, it's got to be a, my guess is up by Wrigleyville because all the gay people live near uh, the Cubs, uh, uh, Wrigley Field. So I guess that's the neighborhood yeah, around the, there. That's what yeah, the, yeah, I... I know where it is because I had a friend who he went to school with a girl and she was a, a party planner for gay clubs. That sounds like a fun job, actually. <laughs> well, there was this one she went to. It was called we, we went to a couple of times. It was called Circus, which is right next to a martini bar called Rehab. And you want to move like. No, honestly, I've often, you know, my brother, Jeremy, he's a. He's a big Cubs fan. I, I asked if he wanted to go to Wrigleyville so, you know, he could, because uh, it's only like, there's only like a couple of blocks between Wrigleyville and uh, Boys Town, the uh, gay section of Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, in Philly, it's called the neighborhood. Oh, well, no, it's called Boys Town. Yeah. I'll have to tell you sometime about the uh, funny incident I saw there at the uh, club one night involving my friend. Yeah, this is like semi-family friendly. <laughs> right. As um, much as a true crime can podcast can get. Right. So he'd pick him up at Bughouse Square or the Greyhound bus station, which yeah, I think if I remember right, the Greyhound bus station was in a CD section of downtown. Or he grabbed him or he found him on the streets and offered him a job at his construction company, PDM. Now, some he grabbed off the street using a fake police badge and handcuffs. Because he, he drove around in like a in a black car, which is what the undercover guys in Chicago was using at the time. And he'd have like that leather jacket that looked like the one police wore. So he just quickly flash a badge, tell him to get in the car and, you know they would get in the car because they saw a badge. Now he'd take them to his house, play, apply them with drinks and drugs, and then he'd trick them into wearing a pair of handcuffs, which he would go, okay, you know, he puts the handcuffs on behind his back, and then he goes, I'll show you how to get out of these, and then he, you know, pops them off, and then he puts them on the guy, and the guy's like, I can't get out of them, and Casey'd go, yeah, well, it's easy when you have the key. 
he wouldn't give him a key. He'd, he'd keep it on him. So while the handcuffs were on the guys, he would then rape and torture his victims. He would tie a rope tourniquet around their necks, and, and he showed this in the um, interrogation. He put one knot in, and then he'd leave a little, like a little loop, and he'd put another knot in, and then he'd put like a pencil or something in between the two knots, and then he would slowly, uh, you know, he'd slowly turn this with the tourniquet around their neck until they lost conscious and died. Now, Gacy would hide them under his bed for about 24 hours before he buried them in his crawl space. Sometimes he'd involve them in his garage. And he did say a couple of times he did, um, I think he might have cuddled with a couple of them before he uh, put them in the crawl space. And then he would bury the, or, well, I already told you where it was. He, put them in the crawl space and then he'd throw lime over them so that, you know, it would quicken up the decay of the bodies. Now, some serial killers have what is known as a double event. And if you listen to the, uh, the first episode, the man in the train or the man from the train, you know, even Monica can tell you, you know, double events when a, a killer murders twice in the same day, Gacy had six of them. Well, he had three double events over the six years. Man, that must have been hard for him to try to hide one body while he went out and got another one. I, I would think so. Again, that was like Bundy with the... Um, oh, yeah, like sandwich. Yeah, that's it. Made it. How I say sandwiches. Okay. But yeah... Um, Bundy had the one there at the lake. Well, Gacy had three of them over six years. So far, he's he's at the top of my um, double kill event <laughs> list. Gacy could have kept going if it wasn't for the parents of Rob Peast. On December 11th, 1978, he stopped at the Nissan pharmacy to talk to the owner about an upcoming project. Rob overheard the conversation and wanted to talk to Gacy about the job. Now, Rob's mother arrived to pick him up from work, and he asked her to wait so he could talk to Gacy. This was the last time she saw him alive. Once Rob failed to return by the morning, because she kept going by the, the pharmacy saying, hey, is Rob here? You know, have you seen him? So by, you know, by morning, his parents filed the missing person report. Now, at this time, most police refused to investigate a missing persons case, often citing that they were runaways and, you know, hey, your kid will come home, you know, just give him some time. Well, upon the investigation, the police felt that there was something wrong since Rob was close with, with, with his family, and this was unusual behavior. So the police began to investigate the case, and what really sucks is the reason why, I mean, she was picking him up from work, but it was also her birthday. And they had a party planned for mom at home. And they didn't celebrate because Rob wasn't there. So that, that sucks. And definitely ruin birthdays for the rest of your life. Well, right. Because, you know, you're always going to associate your birthday with the disappearance of your son. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? Exactly. Now, 
as the police started their investigation, one name that kept popping up was John Wayne Gacy. So the police went to Gacy's house, but he didn't answer the door. Now, John was in his rec room on the phone, as he said, because he just, according to the story that he, he has stuck to his entire life, he had a death in the family. Now, when he answered the door, Gacy indicated that he had seen two youths working at the farm. To, I, I just said, I said two youths. People of a certain age is just automatic, I think. Right. <laughs> you always I have mean, to say it. You know, I, I wanted to say two youths. It's but, two youths. <laughs> yeah, it's two youths. Uh, sir, what is a ute? I'm sorry. Two youths. Great movie. Now, they were working at the farm pharmacy and that he had asked one of them, who he believed was pieced, whether there were any remodeling materials behind the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Peace a job and had only returned to the pharmacy shortly after eight as he had left his appointment book at the store, which is true. He did leave his appointment book at the store. Now, Gacy promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating he was unable to do so at the moment as his uncle had just died. When questioned as to how soon he could come to the police station, he responded, you guys are very rude. Don't you have any respect for the dead? Then he jumped in his car and sped off through the streets to the hospital. At 3.20 a.m., Gacy arrived at the police station covered in mud, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. On returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in Peace's disappearance and repeated that he had not offered him a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy, Gacy reiterated that he had done so in response to a phone call from Torf, informing him he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives had already spoken with Torf, who denied calling Gacy. At the request of detectives, Gacy prepared a written statement detailing his movements on December 11th. That sucks when your alibi won't even stick up for you. Oh, yeah. Well, he had like nothing to gain by. Well, no. And, and now the thing is, is taking uh, up for him, too. And uh, yeah, there's no real. Yeah. Torf was the oh, Torf, guy yeah. who ran the pharmacy. Yeah. And, you know, even he told the cops, oh, no, I didn't call him. He came back on his own. Uh-huh. While Gacy was in the police station, the police executed a search warrant. This search of Gacy's property revealed several suspicious items, including several police badges and a six millimeter Beretta starter pistol inside an office drawer and a syringe and hypodermic needle inside a cabinet in Gacy's bathroom. Maybe I should start worrying about you. I don't have a gun. Well, not the syringe and the hypodermic needle. Oh, right, because I yeah. work around all that all day. Uh huh. Well, and the insulin intake too. No, I don't take insulin. I do. Oh, okay. I'm, I I actually take metformin for my diabetes. Something I just learned. <laughs> uh, yep. The investigators also found handcuffs, several books on homosexuality, and pederasty. Yeah, I think. It, uh... Fan yeah, band. you're gonna have to explain that one. Actually. I think it, the thing. Let me look it up real. Where the hell is my phone? 
because I think it has something to do with um, pedophilia. Uh, yeah, with green. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. Hold on here. Okay. With titles it. such as The Great White Swallow. Yep. This sounds like a porn title. Okay. Pederasty is sexual activity involving a man and a boy or ute. Yeah, that didn't look good for him. And pretty no, boys did. must die. Yeah, seven pornographic films, capsules of amyl nitrate. Ooh, amyl nitrate, right? Yeah, good stuff, man. Not that I would know. I I heard from Sam Kinison. <laughs> and an eighteen-inch or forty-six centimeter, yeah, dildo in Gacy's bedroom. Jesus, a thirty-nine-inch or ninety-nine centimeter, mm-hmm. two by four with two holes drilled into each end. Bottles of Valium and Atropine. And several driver's licenses were found in the northwest bedroom. A blue hooded parka was found atop a toolbox inside the laundry room. And underwear too small to fit Gacy, and you know that was it was probably normal sized, was located inside a bathroom closet. I could just see him standing there with his friends, going, "Hey guys, fat guy in little underwear, fat <laughs> guy in little underwear." They should have had Chris Farley play him. Now, I bet if, if Chris was still alive, well, obviously, yeah. Um, actually, I think there was a movie made and uh, Brian Dennehy played him. Oh, yeah, and then, um, another one the one the guy will play the older son in uh, um, the League of Their Own. He was in, he played Casey too. Yeah, I, I remember the Brian Dennehy one clearly. Mm-hmm. I was bored one afternoon. I found it on TV, so I just turned it on. Yeah. In the Northwest bedroom, investigators found a class of 1975 Maine West high school ring engraved with the initials JAS. Investigators also recovered a Nissan pharmacy photo receipt from a trash can alongside a 36-inch, 91-centimeter section of nylon rope but there was no sign of Rob. The police feared something had happened to Rob, so the police placed a detail to follow Gacy. The detail worked in 12-hour shifts and was assigned to watch and follow him. Gacy knew he was being watched and would leave the house and begin to speed across town to wherever his destination was. The way he drove, he could have caused an accident. Yeah, even his details said that because he would like speed through red lights and, you know, I mean, I've driven the streets of Chicago, not up in like where his house was, but okay. They drive like maniacs and I'm sure you can vouch for Philly drivers. Um, Los Angeles drivers now. Yeah. Well, I've been with you. Oh, thank you very much. I've been with you when we've cut through Philly traffic and you're pretty quick with the finger. Um, thank you. <laughs> but for him to drive like a maniac through Chicago, that takes some skill. Uh-huh. Especially if he was I mean, driving a cutlass. Oh yeah, because they're pretty fun. in the seventies car. They were all like pretty. Oh the, well, the cutlass back then. Cutlass Supremes were the the car of choice for police officers. Uh, yes, my sir. my stepdad used to have a white cutlass, and I used to drive through the alleys here in town, scaring drug dealers. As you do. <laughs> Well, I knew most of them, so they would, you know, cuss me out as I drove. The police past. often had problems. Oh yeah, 
So police often had problems keeping up with them since the department had cars that were not built for speed. While this was going on, the police began to investigate Gacy's past, obtaining his criminal record from Iowa. After learning he was arrested for sodomy against a minor, they began to fear something terrible had happened to Rob. Duh. (laughs) On December 15th, the Plains investigators obtained further details of Gacy's battery charge, learning the complainant, Jeffrey Rignall, had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, then chloroformed, raped, and tortured him before dumping him with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park the following morning. In an interview with Gacy's former wife the same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Butkovich. The same Uh, day... uh, She said but... (sighs) The same day, the main West High School ring was traced to a John Allen Sizzik. Yeah. An interview with Sizzik's mother revealed that several items from her son's apartment were also missing, including a Motorola TV set. Dun, dun, dun. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming uh, affable with the surveillance detectives regularly inviting them to join him for meals and restaurants and occasionally for drinks in bars or at his home. Uh, he would because, it, you know, as part of a detail, you've got to go in and keep an eye on him in case he decides to slip out. Well, Gacy knew they were cops, so he'd buy him breakfast or <laughs> buy him dinner, you know, invite him in the house for meals because this was December in Illinois and it's, well, back then it was cold. So he repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Peace's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections or because of his recreational drug use. As we know, he was involved with the Democratic um, Democratic Organization or Democratic Party in Chicago. Now, knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial like that, he taunted them by flopping flouting traffic laws and succeeded in losing his pursuers more than once. That afternoon, Cram consented to a police interview in which he described Gacy's hardworking lifestyle and, uh, I'm going to put air quotes around this, open-minded attitude about sex between men. Cram also revealed that because of his poor timekeeping, Gacy had once given him a watch explaining it he got it from a dead person. That's another thing they're going, folks. Gacy's giving away trophies. Investigators conducted a formal interview of Rossi on December 17th. He informed them that Gacy had sold Sick's vehicle to him, explaining that he had bought the car from Sick because he needed money to move to California. Okay. A further examination of Gacy's Oldsmobile was conducted on this date. In the course of examining the trunk of the car, the investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers they suspected to be human hair. That evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German Shepherd search dogs to determine whether peace had been present in any of Gacy's vehicles. One dog approached the Oldsmobile, lay on the passenger seat in what the dog's handler informed the investigators as a death reaction indicating, you know, Peace had been, in, had been present in the vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited Detectives Albright, 
Hockmeister, or Albrecht and Hackmeister, those are some good names there, to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited them into another restaurant where, over breakfast, he talked of his business, his marriages, and his activities as a registered clown. At one point during the conversation, Gacy remarked, you know, clowns can get away with murder, unless you're Fizbo, and you threaten Fizbo's man. I got I to gotta chuckle out of her for that one. Hey, we love Fizbo around here. What other clown are you? What other clown would you know that would threaten a man at a gas pump for messing with his man? I can only think of what Fizbo. You have any um, other ideas? No, but I mean, at, at this time in Chicago, uh, we did have a, a clown on on a weekday morning TV. We had Bozo. Which Bozo? Actually, well, the, the Chicago Bozo. Larry the, Harmon. He's probably the most famous one. Yeah. Well, the Chicago Bozo was the longest running out of all the syndicated Bozo shows. Because, oh, what was it, 2001 when he went off the air? So Alex was almost born when Bozo went off the air. That's a pretty long run. Yeah, well, my mom grew up watching Bozo, and then I grew up watching Bozo. Yeah, uh-huh. And actually, one of my fourth grade teachers was the sister-in-law to one of the clowns on the Bozo show. I don't know if you guys had um, the Marshall Brody magic kits sold out there. No. Okay, we used, around Chicago, we used to have these uh, Marshall Brody magic kits that you could buy at, like, Walgreens. And Marshall Brodeen was a magician. He was also Wizzo, the world's most famous wizard on the Bozo Show. And his sister-in-law was one of my fourth grade teachers. And I kept trying to get her to get Wizzo to come down and do a show for us. And she kept asking me, why don't you want Bozo? I'm like, I don't really care about Bozo. I like Wizzo. At least Wizzo's entertaining. He's a magician. With his stone of... The stone of Zanzibar is what he wore around his neck. I'll, I'll have to explain it all to you later. Anyway, reliving childhood memories. So on December 17th, Gacy began to show signs that the detail was wearing him down. He went to his lawyer and began to file a civil suit for $750,000 against the Des Plaines Police Department. The police also made a connection with the photo receipt that they found in the house. Nissen employee Kimberly Byers had borrowed Rob's jacket because she was working up front and, you know, the door kept opening up and the the cold draft kept coming in. So she asked Rob to wear her coat or wear his coat so she could stay warm. And she was having some film processed. So this was back in the day before digital photos (laughs) where you took your photos to a photo lab. And they would rip off a little tag on the envelope that had your number on it so that, you know, you could pick up your film with it. Well, she put the paper in the coat pocket and they found they found that they matched the slip up and realized that, well, this was in Rob's coat. 
So Rob had to have been here at the house. On December 19th, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. The same day, Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the De Plains police. The hearing for the suit was scheduled for December 22nd. That afternoon, Gacy invited the surveillance detectives inside his house again. As Officer Robinson distracted Gacy with conversation, Officer Schultz walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the Motorola TV set they suspected belonged to John Sizzik. While flushing Gacy's toilet, the officer noticed a smell he suspected could be that of rotting corpses emanating from a heating duct. The officers who had searched Gacy's house previously had failed to notice this as the house had been cold. Yeah, on the evening, said, what um, Officer Schultz had said in the in the documentary was, "You work police for a while, you know what the smell of a dead body is. That that's a smell that doesn't leave you. And when the furnace kicked on, <laughs> goddamn furnaces, <laughs> will get you every time. That the furnace will get you every time if you got something buried in the basement, man." On the evening of December 20th, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office in Park Ridge to attend a scheduled meeting, ostensibly to discuss the progress of his civil suit. On his arrival, Gacy appeared disheveled and immediately asked for an alcoholic drink, whereupon Sam Amarenti fetched a bottle of whiskey from his car. On his return, Amarenti asked Gacy what he had to discuss with him. Gacy picked up a copy of the Daily Herald from Amaranti's desk, pointed to a front-page article covering the disappearance of Robert Peast, and said, this boy is dead. He's dead. He's in a river. Gacy then proceeded to give a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began by informing Amaranti and Stevens he had been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people. And then he now wanted to be the same for himself. He said he buried most of his victims in his crawl space and had disposed of five other bodies in the De Plains River. Gacy dismissed his victims as male prostitutes, hustlers, and liars, to whom he gave the rope trick, adding he sometimes awoke to find dead, strangled kids on his floor with their hands cuffed behind their back. He had buried their bodies in his crawl space as he believed they were his property. And like I was telling Monica before we turned on the mics, um, I've met Sam Amarante and, and he confirmed all of this. I mean, this is, this, and what's funny is like he had just, he, he was part of a law firm and he decided to go into private practice. And who's his first, <laughs> first client? John Wayne Gacy. Now, as, as a result of the alcohol he consumed, Gacy fell asleep midway through his confession. Amarante immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at nine in the morning. On awakening several hours later, Gacy shook his head when he informed when informed by Amarante he had confessed to killing approximately 30 people, saying, Well, I can't think about this right now. I've got things to do. Ignoring his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointment, G 
Gacy left their office to attend to the needs of his business. Gacy later recollected his memories of his final day of freedom as being hazy, adding he knew his arrest was inevitable and that he intended to visit his friends and say his final farewells. And one of these was, um, I don't think I put this in, but he stopped at a gas station to get gas and he, he knew the owner and there was a kid working behind the counter. So Gacy gave him a bag of weed as a parting gift. <laughs> but then when the cops walked in, the kid was like, he just gave me the weed. Don't, don't arrest me. The, the cops didn't arrest him. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just said what my next line was. <laughs> Okay, in the course of filling his rental car, he handed a small bag of cannabis to the attendant, who immediately handed the bag to the surveillance officer, adding that Gacy had told him, the end is coming. These guys are going to kill me. He then drove to his home, to the home of a fellow contractor and friend, Arnold Rode. Now, Gacy hugged Rode before bursting into tears and saying, I've been a bad boy. I killed 30 people, eh, give or take a few. Gacy left road and drove to Cram's house to meet with Cram and Rossi. As he drove along the expressway, the surveillance officers noted that he was holding a rosary to his chin, praying while he drove. After talking with Cram and Rossi, Gacy had Cram drive him to, a, to the scheduled meeting with his lawyer, Leroy Stevens, on the northwest side. Gacy spoke with Stevens, and Cram informed the surveillance officers that Gacy had told him and Rossi that he had confessed to over 30 murders with his lawyers the previous evening. Gacy then had Cram drive him to Mary Hill Cemetery where his father was buried. As Gacy drove to various locations that morning, police outlined the formal draft of their second search warrant, specifically to search for the body of Robert Peast in the crawl space. On hearing from the surveillance detectives that, in light of his erratic behavior, Gacy might be about to commit suicide. Police decided to arrest him on a charge of possession and distribution of cannabis in order to hold him in custody as the formal request for a second search warrant was presented. At 4.30 p.m. on December 21st, the eve of the hearing of Gacy's civil suit, Judge Marvin J. Peters granted the request for a second search warrant. After police informed Gacy of their intentions to search his crawl space for the body of Peast, Gacy denied the teenager was buried there, but confessed to having killed in self-defense a young man who's buried, whose body was buried under his garage. Armed with the signed search warrant, police and evidence technicians drove to Gacy's home. On their arrival, officers found Gacy had unplugged his sump pump, flooding the crawl space with water to clear it. They simply replaced the plug and waited for the water to drain. After it had done so, evidence technician Daniel Genty entered the 28 by 38 foot or 8.5 meters by 11.6 meters crawl space, crawled to the southwest area and began digging. Within minutes, he had uncovered putrefied flesh and a human arm bone. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Genty immediately shouted to the investigators that they could charge Gacy with murder, adding, I think this place is full of kids. A police photographer then dug in the northeast corner of the cross base, uncovering a patella. The two then began digging in the southeast corner, uncovering two lower leg bones. The victims were too decomposed to be, pre- or to be pieced. As the body discovered in the northeast corner was later unearthed, a crime scene technician discovered the skull of a second victim alongside his body. Later excavations of the feet of this second victim revealed a further skull beneath the body. Because of this, technicians returned to the trench where the first body was unearthed, discovering the rib cage of a fourth victim within the crawl space, confirming the scale of the murders. In the early morning hours of December 22nd, in the presence of his lawyers, John Wayne Gacy was arrested for murder. The next part was to dig out the bodies. And that's where we're going to wrap up John Wayne Gacy this time, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I think the, the reporter that broke the case, I think his name was uh, Jay Levine. So he was a big, big reporter here in Chicago during that time. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to cover it more in, in uh, when we cover the trial and everything. But what happened was uh, someone called him and said, hey, you better get over to this address right away. And he knew a lot of the cops. So when he pulled up, the cops were like, oh, shit, Levine's here. But they kind of kept it quiet until, um, I mean, until they they couldn't really say anything to the reporters until Gacy was arrested. So once they arrested him, then they could break the, you know, break the news. And um, we'll cover it more in the next episode. But the neighborhood became a. A carnival, let's just say. Well, that's usually what happens when there's some big crime. <laughs> right. I'm sure there was one lady out there going, you know, I, I just, I knew there was something wrong. I, I would stand at my window and I, I would swear that he was doing something wrong over there. But no officer would listen to me. They just thought I was crazy. That's terrifying. How could you do it? old? little lady voice <laughs> you're right and then you wonder why i didn't go into voice acting you know hey i, I just tried to tell them that there was just something wrong there there was so many little there was just so many teenage boys over there i thought he was a pervert or something <laughs> didn't i tell you abner did, didn't i tell you that i thought fit right in fargo <laughs> what could fit right into fargo Sounds like <laughs> I've never seen Fargo. It's been like a lot of years since I've seen it. Didn't I say Ab- Abner? Didn't I tell you that I thought Mr. Casey was a pervert? He's standing there in his boxer shorts and a wife beater. And I thought she was just making the shit up, honestly, officer. Uh, officer, if you you if you find a pair of uh, garden hedges over there with a green handle, can you please give them back? They were mine. I, I let him borrow them last summer to trim his bushes. But this was um this was the I remember a little bit of this winter, the winter of seventy eight. Um, 
when it rolled over in the 79, we got hit with a huge blizzard that year. So it, it, it put a halt on a lot of work, uh, a lot of the excavation because people couldn't get out. And I mean, that they were, with everything shut off in the house, you know, the, the bodies were kept pretty cool. I was like, weren't they, I think, not in the most recent one, but one of the documentaries? Yeah. I think, weren't they, like, talk about um, basically taking the house off its foundation so be um basically what they did what they did because there wasn't enough room to move in the crawl spaces they ripped up the floor in the house so they had more room to move because i think that was easier they said than pulling the entire house up well disgusting yeah yeah, they they lifted well they tore the floor up but because you know because of the extent of how damn it or how many bodies were under there and, you know, they're ripping up floors all over the place. The house became structurally unsound for anyone to live in it. So the, the judge signed a court order for them to tear the house down. Yeah, so then. But that was after they had the bodies yeah, out. After, too, right? after all the bodies were out, they, they the judge signed a court order to uh, demolish the house. Yeah. Because I remember one point Phil wanted to go up and and see the Gacy house I'm like um, I believe they tore it down because I thought they tore it down because too many people were driving by and taking pictures it wasn't until I really got into the research on this one that it was because of um, you know the structural integrity of the house yeah then they've put another house there it's weird like how they decide what to do with because the um, uh, the oh boy, in the Connecticut, the the mother and the daughter, the, in Cheshire, okay, um, Connecticut, they end up they tore that house down. Yeah, the um, wait, yeah, the Pettit family. They tore that house down, but they made it like a memorial garden. Right. The John Benet Ramsey house, that's still standing. They put up a fence all around it. I know they were using it for some housing for the University of Colorado Boulder students. So it's just, it's weird how, like, I guess the case by case basis, what happens to these houses if they still stand or torn down, nothing put there. I mean, I can really, I, I can really see someone going, you know, using the John Benet Ramsey house of student housing going, you know, just, just with everything that happened in the house itself. You know, somebody wanted to, someone probably got their young niece there and dressed her up and, you know, made her look like a ghost so she could run through the house and scare her uh, roommates. Oh, yeah. I would. But yeah, that's why we... Went past the house a little over a year after, and their fence wasn't up yet, so you could still clearly, still go up to it. Yeah. Um, well, I know out there, out there in Philly, you had the uh, Foxcatcher Farm, right? Oh uh, yeah. Well, that, that again, that, not Newtown Square. So that was actually the Delaware County, and I could kick myself now because never went past the house. 
as usual because it's so close and you just never do it. Right. And then, yeah. But now it's all the like, yeah. Yeah, it's gone. It's all, yeah, it's all just the huge, you know, the McMansions. Nice neighborhood. No, well, yeah, but it's still with it's. Um, I think that if they're still calling Foxcatcher, but yeah, there was like Foxcatcher Road or something. Yeah. And it, it, I still find it amazing. And I, I actually did a little bit of research on it after I, after you took me out there. That um, Olympic gold medal wrestler and uh, WWE superstar Kurt Angle trained there. Oh uh, yeah, uh-huh. Kurt Angle. You suck. You suck. Well, he had this really weird theme. The theme music, it was like horns would go dun, 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 dun. And every time in the break, the audience would yell, you suck. Well, that's not very nice. I forget how it started. I I forget how the chant started, but the audience kind of picked up on it and just just ran with it like they do in wrestling. Yeah, because it's called what Lissiter um yeah community. And I, I didn't know until I went to, to Pittsburgh that uh Kurt Engel's actually from Pittsburgh. Again, all the way over on the other side of the state. Well there was also About five hours or so away. Right. When I went there, um when I went to the Heinz Museum there. I saw that there was another famous um, WWE superstar had uh, lived. It came from Pittsburgh, uh, Bruno San Martino. Yeah, I'm showing my geekiness for old school wrestling history. Very. <laughs> okay, folks. Never, are, hmm? I was, it was never really into it. It was the only sport dad watched, and he'd watched on Saturdays and Sundays. Because that was the only two days it was on back when I was growing up. Remember the um, swim club back in the 80s? They had the the WW. Yeah. Those cream bars. They were really. Oh, yeah, the ice cream bars. I remember those. Yeah, I used to get them a lot. Just And they would have like trading cards, and then they could like. Yeah. Off, but the ice cream was so good. I wish they'd bring them back. There's so many like oh, and the Mickey Mouse like the. I remember. I wish they'd bring back the uh, Looney Tunes ones they had when I was a kid. Yeah, they had the best. Oh, they had novelty ice cream. (laughs) Okay, folks, we're gonna wrap this up. Uh, We are on Podbean. We're on Castbox. We're gonna get we're gonna get on iTunes one day, folks. Just bear with us. Whatever platform you listen to us on, just give us a rate and review because for some unknown reason that no one can quite figure out, it's got something to do with the algorithm. The more likes and reviews you get, the higher up you go on the charts, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't even say it when I, when I introduced the show for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crimes. I'm Scotty J. Say goodnight, Monica. Goodnight, Monica. <laughs> Later, folks.
This concludes our broadcast day. Good night, and God bless you.